Well, give me that textile workers' union. Textile workers' union. That textile workers' union. It's good enough for me. Now it was good enough for Daddy. We very much hope that in addition to the hundreds of people who will attend who are students and professors, that other people interested in history, labor history specifically, and and labor politics today will join us. I think that the Passaic strike shows that even in the worst of times, there is hope for workers to organize. And the potential of that, even though the strike did ultimately fail, I think it provided a basis for later battles that went on in the late 20s and more importantly in the 1930s. This Friday, the biennial conference of LACHA, the Labor and Working Class History Association, kicks off. It's being held online, making it available to labor history fans around the world. Labor History Today's Patrick Dixon gets a preview from conference co-chair Peter Cole. This year marks the 95th anniversary of the 1926 textile strike in Passaic, New Jersey, when some 15,000 unskilled wool workers, mostly immigrants and half of them women, struck for more than a year for higher wages and better conditions. We talk about the strike and its relevance to today's struggles with Jacob Zumoff, author of The Red Thread, the first comprehensive study of this historic strike. And on Labor History in Two... The year was 1934. That was the day Minneapolis Teamsters walked off the job. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us, Peter. I'm pleased to talk to you about the Labour and Working Class History Association Conference, which begins Thursday, May the 20th. Can you tell us a bit about the theme of the conference, please? Of course. Our conference theme is called Workers on the Frontline. And obviously, due to the global pandemic, conversations about essential workers and workers, some of whom, of course, can stay at home, like myself and many professors and others of whom have to go into the world and and risk death, literally. And so it seemed only appropriate, given we're a labor organization, to honor those workers, but also to think um, about such workers past and present. And so by workers on the front line, you will consider the COVID-19 pandemic, but there are other contexts in which workers are on front lines at different points in space and time, too. Exactly, right? And so this is hardly the first time that workers have proved essential to the operation of a community and society in the world. And so most of the presentations and panels are historical in nature, although we do have a number that are overtly contemporary and many where we hope that the past seems obviously relevant to the present. And not all of our listeners, academics, and many don't attend academic conferences. Do you need to be a labor historian to attend this type of thing or read a lot of labor history books? Of course, everyone is welcome. One of the benefits 
of a virtual conference is that people can participate from the comfort of their home, maybe only one or two sessions, and looking through the program, which is available at our website, that people can decide for themselves, right? A number of our events are involve people who are um, labor organizers or activists of some sort. Some of our events involve journalists and others who think about the past but really are focused on the present. And we have a variety of different registration rates, yeah, so that people who want to support us, of course, can register at a regular amount or at a higher amount. But those who either who can't afford the registration costs, we have a much reduced rate and we even have a single day rate. And we even have a zero dollar option. So although we appreciate the support, our conference costs money to run, people could just register and attend one session or multiple sessions and for the fabulous price of zero dollars. And so we intentionally created a conference registration package that was open literally to everybody. And all of our sessions will be delivered via Zoom. And we very much hope that in addition to the hundreds of people who will attend who are students and professors, that other people interested in history, labor history specifically, and and, and labor politics today will join us because we organize this conference in such a way that we hope it will be of great interest to many beyond the academic community. Are there any particular sessions that were striking or unusual or eye-catching that you'd like to mention? Of course, co-chair the committee and uh, sort of biased in multiple ways. We've got a great plenary on the organization of workers in the food industry, right, involving union um, organizers and activists. Since that industry is one example of how during the pandemic this industry suffered, but also, of course, that we all want to eat and need to eat. And so we've got a sort of one evening event on that. Um, We've got a great evening event uh, with five different journalists who work on labor and working class issues for newspapers and magazines and websites. And so it's often said that journalism is the first draft of history. And so we figured we'd talk to some labor journalists um, to think about that in terms of working class history. We're showing several films documentary films, including a new film about the Haymarket Affair um, with the filmmaker present, as well as a film uh, called Nine to Five, which is about the uh, organization of administrative and secretarial women workers in the 70s. And the filmmakers will be present as well. And uh, their last film won the Oscar for Best Documentary Film. That was called American Factory. Um, And we've also got really dozens of panels with really smart, engaging people. And I'm looking through the program, I found that there were session, multiple sessions in each time slot that I would like to watch. And so I'm very excited because I think we've really created a wonderful program for this, this event. I think so too. Just a label question of a different sort. I've never been the co-chair, but I've been all in, involved in the organization of different conferences at different times. How hard has this one been to organize? It's a bear. Honestly, there's a lot of details. It can be quite similar to the organization of a conference in person. The sort of COVID, however, has slowed everyone down, including us. And so we're, we've been somewhat slow, actually, to get out the registration and program. But we all look forward to doing face-to-face events, including conferences in the near future. And I'm actually talking to you from Chicago, just a few miles from where the conference would have been if we were holding it live. But yeah, it's been a lot of work. Thankless work, unpaid work, but essential work as well. 
I was really hoping to come to Chicago, but there's such an amazing selection of sessions. I'm still looking forward to it. Just just before we go, you might have, you mentioned it earlier, but how do you register if you're interested in attending? Of course, through everything is going to be through our website, and you can find the conference website by googling it or just going to our organization website, which is Lacha. L-A-W-C-H-A, lacha.org, and then you'll be able to find there the, click on the link to the annual conference, and then from there, the registration is pretty straightforward. There's a big button in the middle of our conference webpage that just says registration, as well as that's where you can see the program. Soon we're going to have a beautiful final version of the program, but there's already an accurate draft available so that you can plan your 10 days from May 20th to May 28th when we've got uh, sort of dozens of all-star lineups. Thanks so much for this. I look forward to virtually seeing you there. It's a pleasure. We appreciate the support. And yeah, it is the sort of the, the most important and largest scholarly organization of labor history in the U.S., and so this is really the place to be. We have this conference every other year. We, and one year we do it in conjunction with the Organization of American Historians, and it's smaller, just some sessions. But then biennially we do our standalone conference. And so this is the first and best time to see this right now, and then you'll have to wait till 2023 um, for the next one. Okay. Thanks again, then. Cheers. Well, of course, the workers just didn't sing about the blues. Many times they did something about it, and that's where the union comes in. Now, a lot of the good songs come from the South because the Southerners were great singers. But we have a song here that comes out of the Northern strike, out of the old Passaic textile woolen strike in 1926. And a lot of you know this song. Doesn't say much about textile workers, but it's a good picket line song, and that strike lasted for many, many months, so I, I think they did a lot of singing in that song. And it's called On the Line. Comes out of textile strike 1926%. Now the union is the place for me, place for working men who want some time to sing and play and money they can spend. On the line, on the line, on the line, come picket on the picket line. We'll win our fight, our fight for the right on the picket, picket line. Well, I am a union man because I want a living wage. We'll stick together, we'll fight together, we'll get that living wage. On the line, on the line. strike and our demands come and pick it on the picket line and when strong union we'll join hands on the picket picket So, Jacob, thanks for joining me today. I'm really interested to talk to you about your new book, The Red Fred, The Passaic Textile Strike. And some of our audience will be unfamiliar with the Passaic Strike. Can you give us a quick overview of what happened? What was the meaning of it? 
The Passaic strike went from January 1926 through early 1927. It took place centered in the city of Passaic in northern New Jersey, but it also involved mills that were in the surrounding area. And for more than a year, 15,000 uh, wool workers went on strike, demanding fighting against uh, wage cut and also demanding union recognition as well as better conditions. The strike was against a handful of wool and worsted companies. Most of them, these were large mills with thousands of workers, and they were owned mainly by German textile companies. The two biggest ones would be Botany Worsted and Forstmann and Huffman, which were two of the bigger wool companies in the United States. Other aspects of the strike that I think are quite important was that this was done outside of the American Federation of Labor because the United Textile Workers, which organized textile workers, didn't want anything to do with these workers because they were unskilled, mainly immigrants, and half of them were women. So the organization was led by a group called the United Front Committee, which was the leadership was close to the American Communist Party at the time. Ultimately, the strike failed but it galvanized public opinion at the time because it was huge picket lines and massive state repression. As many as 900 people were arrested during the strike. And so it really became a national cause celebre that symbolized the struggle of workers in the 1920s against wage cuts and anti-union companies against repression. And it became, like I said, a symbol for the labor movement nationally in the period. And you mentioned the 1920s. One of these ideas that you do stress in the book, as I understand it, is that this is very much an event of the 1920s, that the particulars of the economy of of the time come into what happens there. Can you explain that a little bit, please? Sure, sure. I, I think that it was very much an event of the 1920s on several different levels. On an economic level, The 1920s are generally known as the Roaring Twenties. They're seen as a period of high profits, of good business. But for a lot of people, particularly workers, they were feeling left behind. And this was certainly true for the textile workers. The textile industry had been booming during the First World War. But then by the mid-1920s, they began to cut wages and carry out attacks on workers. And so in that sense... I think that the strike resonated. It was also, in many ways, a event of the 1920s because these were mainly unskilled immigrant and largely women who were in the vanguard of the labor movement and in the next decade, in the 30s, were the core of the CIO and the Industrial Union movement. So they represented the changing face of the working class. It also was an event of the 20s because the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, was certainly on the back foot in the decade and was not really willing to organize these type of workers. And then I also think it was an event of the 20s because you had a confluence, for example, of the media coverage. One of the things that I looked at is because to say it, is in the New York metropolitan area, all the newspapers from the New York Times to the New York Post to the New York Graphic covered the strike almost daily. And so this was the high age of tabloids 
And it was something that in the Metropolitan Press, you could open up and see photos of strikers on the picket line, policemen attacking strikes. And so this kind of helped propel it into a national attention, which reflected kind of the mood of the 1920s. And all this kind of helped make the strike symbolic for the plight of the workers in the United States as a whole. That must have made it quite enjoyable to to research, there being this enormous bounty of newspapers, of photographs available to you. Yeah, one of the main sources that I used in the book is newspaper articles. And there is no shortage of, of coverage. And one of the nice things is this was a period of large pictures in the paper. So it's something, it's one of these strikes that was that is well documented. The, the, the picket lines, the, the attacks by the police, and it is every little bit of the strike is oftentimes covered in one or another newspaper article. So I think that makes telling the story much more rich. And you mentioned this very public presence of CP leadership. Presumably the newspapers didn't rally behind support in support of a communist-led strike, did they? No. The role of the CP, the local newspapers, and there were a lot of local newspapers, Passaic itself had two daily newspapers, a morning and an evening paper, and then Patterson and Newark each had several papers. The Local papers were unrelenting in their red-baiting of the leader of the strike, who was Albert Weisbord, and of the communists. And this kind of followed the mill companies who tried to make communism an issue in the strike. The metropolitan papers, like the Daily News in New York or the New York Post, were they were by no means pro-communist. But I think they saw that there was a good story. And then at one point, the police decided, and I think rather stupidly on their part, to go after newspaper reporters. At one point, they attacked uh, a New York Daily News reporter and destroyed several thousand dollars worth of camera equipment, Hmm. which didn't make the papers particularly happy. So they had a field day. Uh, So there is a division between the metropolitan papers and the local papers and the coverage of the strike. And and besides besides the sort of difference in demographics between, say, the the workers on strike there and what you might have seen in a more traditional AFL union, you also stress that the CP leadership had certain strategic insights or ideas about Mm -hmm. how to to go about a strike, how to organise a strike. Yeah. One of the reasons that I was drawn to this topic is because this was the first strike, a mass strike that was led by the CP that was in the popular eye. So a lot of people who probably would not have known anything about the Communist Party and would probably be very unfavorably disposed to it, this was the first time that they got exposed to communist leadership in a major strike. And the CP acquitted itself very well, even though the strike in the end lost. And I think that, and in fact, what I argue in the book is that the CP was instrumental in making the strike what it was. One of the things that they did is they provided a political framework for the strike so that 
they stress things like what they would say would be class struggle instead of class collaboration, the importance of winning the strike or trying to win the strike based on the workers' own mobilization, instead of looking to the Democratic state administration of Governor A. Harry Moore or looking to the Coolidge administration, the Labor Department, they stressed time and time again that the strike would be won on the picket lines, not through the government. They also provided a perspective in which the police, the court system, the army, what they would call the capital state, were the enemies of the workers, and the workers needed to be on guard to prepare to defend themselves. Beyond that, I think what the CP was very good at was building solidarity. They stressed the need for workers to stick together. They built an amazing system of soup kitchens and babysitting for strikers' kids and a playground, all with the goal of building solidarity among the workers, but also among workers outside of Passaic. They did a movie in order to gain support. And so they really turned this strike into a major event, including using the communist media, the Daily Worker, various foreign language newspapers, the movie, like I said, they showed throughout the country, and even foreign newspapers. The, there's a couple articles in Le in France, Prague, in Russia. So they really tapped into a communist international network to build solidarity in the United States and, inter- and internationally, which, like I said, not only helped the strike on the ground, but really turned it into an issue of solidarity with workers struggling. So because of that, I think it became much more important than just the strike of, of 15,000 wool workers. And as I said, symbolized the entire strike or the entire movement of workers in this period. Do, do, you, do you think some might say that these are all sort of useful and these are all good ideas, but they're not unique to necessarily people with a communist worldview that Social Democrats might agree with many of these points, too. That's a, that's, obviously, that's true. But what I think the CP was able to do was, in a period in which the labor movement was really in retreat, they were the only people who were willing to push these ideas, including by garnering support from people who were not communists at all. People like Rabbi Stephen Wise, who was one of the leading liberal rabbis in the period, Franklin, Frank Walsh, one of the leading liberal attorneys, the ACLU. One of the things the CP did is it actually was able to tap into support, like you said, by Social Democrats and others, including in the AFL, uh, to really build what they call the United Front of the Workers against the United Front of the Capitalists in Passaic. One of the, like I said, one of the benefits, I would say one of the benefits of the CP's involvement is that they brought forces beyond themselves into the strike. That's an interesting analysis, it seems to me, because the CP, at that time, many people would think of it as extremely sectarian and that it doesn't embrace the idea of a United Front until 10 years later. And yet what you're describing is that it had perhaps a lot more tactical adaptability than that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's certainly the case. Obviously, the CP was 
in some ways still trying out new methods. But I think that a lot of what the CP did in the Passaic strike in 1926 was became important a decade later when the CP and other radicals were helping to build the CIO, including reaching out to intellectuals, to artists, and to people, politicians whose views were very far from the CP. One of the things was, for example, Socialist Party leader Norman Thomas, who wasn't, in 1926, the standard bearer of the Socialist Party, but he was still quite important, went to Passaic and was arrested and was held under, I believe, a $10,000 bail. All this was ways of building support for the strike. So besides the Daily Worker, the Socialist Party's new leader ran quite a bit of that, the articles about the strike. They, the CP, I would say, was certainly not sectarian in the strike and, in fact, combined pretty open communist politics, including in opposition to some of the people they were seeking support with trying to build a united front. And even though the strike in the end failed, I think that the CP was quite successful in building this united front, which later on, I think in many ways, was a precursor to the Sacco and Manzetti campaign a year later. Now, just as we come to the end here, other historians have written about the Passaic strike in the past. Many have written about the workers in the, the Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, workers in the needle trades in general. What what made what made it important to you to revisit this strike at this particular time that we're living in now? On a personal level, I was interested in the strike coming out of my earlier work on the American Communist Party. And since I live in northern, I live in upper Manhattan and I work in New Jersey, I would pass to say on my way to work and I thought it would be, there was no monograph that focuses specifically on the strike. I thought that was a gap that needed to be filled for people who were growing up in Passaic or living in Passaic and wanted to know about the strike. More broadly, I think that to me, as I was working on this book, the Passaic strike really does speak to the situation of the period we're living in, in the sense that we are living in a period in which inequality Economic inequality is in many ways the worst it's been since the 1920s. The percentage of workers in unions is in many ways almost as bad as it was in the 1920s. And what there isn't is a force that is willing and able to actually organize workers in a massive way. And I think that the Passaic strike shows that even in the worst of times, there is hope for workers to organize and the potential of that, even though, like I said, the strike did ultimately fail. I think it provided a basis for later battles that went on in the late 20s and more importantly in the 1930s at the CIO. So I would hope that people would look at the book not just as a bunch of people of a strike of workers in northern New Jersey in an industry that really doesn't exist there anymore, but more as a way to understand the possibilities of a militant labor movement in a period that's really right-wing and reactionary and anti-labor. Uh, just, just one quick f f final question. One, one of the places I always find quite interesting to visit is Harper's Ferry. And on the one hand, it's... 
It's a town that it just seems to struggle with making sense of, of what happened there. On the one hand, slavery is bad. John Brown was fighting slavery. John Brown was also fighting against the United States Army. One soldier in the army got killed. He has a statue there. So I, I, it's slightly confused. Is there any sense, of, did you get any sense of how people in Passaic think of the strike? That's an interesting question because I did spend a relatively significant amount of time in Passaic at the various public libraries, especially, which were very useful in trying to find newspaper articles. And I would talk to people about the strike. And I think that the strike. First of all, I think that a lot of people don't know very much about the strike. And one of the things that struck me was the number of people who got the 1926 Passaic strike confused with the 1913 Patterson strike, which is much more famous. But I also think that there's a tendency to, even among people who remember, or don't remember, but know about the strike, to downplay its importance and how it actually reverberated throughout these communities. And to some degree, I think that's the result of post-World War II anti-communism, because a lot of the people who were involved in the strike were Eastern European ethnic groups that later became more anti-communist after World War II. But I think that when I tell people about the strike and its impact, a lot of people are very surprised. So I'm hoping that for people who live in the area, that this book will illuminate a part of the history that I don't think is very well known. It's been really great talking to you. I do appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day Minneapolis Teamsters walked off the job. It was an historic strike that coincided with the pivotal Toledo Autolite and West Coast Waterfront strikes. Local Teamsters, many of whom later founded the Socialist Workers' Party, had been riding a wave of success, having organized the coal yards in February. Especially important was the development of the cruising picket squad. It became a standard in later CIO battles. That spring, union leaders were determined to organize all the truck drivers and warehouse workers in Minneapolis. By May, Local 574 had over 5,000 members. The trucking bosses refused to deal with the union, and so they walked. The flying pickets toured the city and shut down all trucking. Strikers enlisted the support of the unemployed councils. They also provided the structure for a women's auxiliary that produced important strike literature and bulletins, ran soup kitchens that fed thousands of strikers daily, fought scabs and police on the picket lines, and drove picket trucks. Historian Brian Palmer, author of Revolutionary Teamsters, the Minneapolis Trucker Strike of 1934, notes that strike leaders looked to the example of the Illinois Progressive Miners of America when it came to building the women's auxiliary. They too sought to make women an integral part of the strike, thus encroaching on the male world of waged work. Strike headquarters were established, and as Palmer describes, was a beehive of activity on the eve of the strike as union carpenters and plumbers installed stoves, sinks, and serving counters. Union electricians installed communication wiring. Donations of money, food, vehicles, and gas rolled in as the strike revved up. Local 574 was poised to make Minneapolis a union town. 
Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. This Dorson Dixon, who was a say, weaver and uh, weaver down in Darlington, South Carolina, had a lot of talent. Wrote a lot of songs, made a few records in the 20s, and uh, oh, he made a few bucks, but he mostly worked in the mills. And uh, even though uh, conditions were grim, as we know when we study songs, uh, a lot of times the grimmest songs have a comic touch to them. And it's not because uh, things are uh, funny, but it's the only way you can make it. It makes a tough, grim, miserable life bearable. And one of his fine songs is a thing called the Weave Room Blues. It's got a little bit of a yodel in there. It goes, I've got the blues, Weave Room Blues. Would you like to try that? We got 37 textile yodels. I've got the blues, Weave Room Blues. You don't have to be a weaver. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHC on your favorite podcast app, and we hope you do even better. If you like what you hear, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along to everybody you know. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music today included Give Me That Textile Workers Union on the picket line and Weave Room Blues, all sung by Joe Glazer. They're from Textile Voices, Songs and Stories of the Mills on Smithsonian Folkways recordings and also available on YouTube. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time. Slam outs, break outs, make outs by the score. Cloth all rolled up and piled up on the floor. The bats are running into strings, they're hanging to your shoes. And I'm simply dying with them wee room blues. I've got the blues. I got the blues. I've got them all full of wee room blues. I've got the blues, wee room blues. I got the blues, wee.